You may not realize this, but Jesus was a, a trendsetter. He was. He was a trendsetter. Uh, and you might say, well, how in the world was he a trendsetter? He, he wore leather sandals, and, and he didn't really have a place that he lived, and all of those things just seem kind of strange. I'm not sure that that many people did those things. But one way that he was certainly a trendsetter was, I mean, the man had a beard. And of all the things that you can think about Jesus, typically if you try to picture him, what you picture is this picture that is not accurate, but is considered to be a portrait of Jesus. That's what you thought of, I'm guessing. Some of you may have had one of these hanging in your house or maybe in like a grandparent's house. Seems to be another thing. There are still some churches that have this up. Like it's actually a portrait of Jesus. Is it possible that Jesus looked like that? I suppose it's possible. It's not probable. Now, is it probable that he had a beard? That's a little more likely. And the truth about the beard that Jesus always has, it's always manly when we think about Jesus' beard, right? Like Jesus doesn't have a chin strap. He doesn't have a goatee. He never, you never see Jesus with a soul patch, although soul patch, the idea of that terminology kind of makes you, maybe Jesus should have had a soul patch. He was concerned with souls. He always had a thick, manly beard, like, like he was, could be out in the wilderness somewhere and his face would stay plenty warm. And I hope that that's really how it was, I'm, I'm not sure. But that's what's in right now, right, is a, is a thick, manly beard, like that's the thing you're supposed to have if, you're, if you want to truly be a guy right now, I, I don't know that that really matters, but guys are into beards right now, and, and, and so Jesus was ahead of his time. And as you'll see from our study this morning, Jesus was also way ahead of his time on what has become a, a truly, uh, truly an American staple, the all-you-can-eat buffet. I remember being a kid when, when an old country buffet opened up in, in, in Erie, Pennsylvania. I don't know, how many of you have actually eaten at an old country buffet? Specifically, an old, yeah, all right, good. That's good. I remember when it opened. I don't know why we were excited about this. I don't know what it was, but, but we would go to Erie, which was kind of near our hometown, and we'd go up to go to the mall, and we'd stop at Old Country Buffet. And what I remember as a kid was the line. And so that's why I like this picture, because there's literally a line, and all of those people are over 70. Like, I can pretty much guarantee it. And so we would go, and we would get in line. And as a kid, I remember thinking, this is taking forever, and we'd stay in line for a little while and finally get in the door. Because there really used to be lines out the door at Old Country Buffet on a regular basis. Now, from my research this week, they're actually shutting a lot of them down. Um, which is sad, but I'm sure they have good reasons. And so we'd get in the door and you'd be like, we're getting close. And then you'd see one of those little signs that said like, approximately 20 minutes from this point. And 20 minutes for a little kid was like, we are never going to get to eat and I'm going to starve and it's going to be ugly and this is not going to be good. And then we'd get there, and when you finally get into Old Country Pavilion, you finally get into the seating area, there's food everywhere. If you've never been to one of these, you won't fully understand, but my kid eyes and my kid's stomach were just overwhelmed. I remember the cinnamon rolls specifically. They had some crazy good cinnamon rolls. I don't know why I remember cinnamon rolls. They had a big old salad bar. I always liked salad as a kid. They had guys in chef's hats. Slicing meat to order for you at this little station. And I remember as a kid thinking, this must be like the fanciest restaurant I've ever eaten. And they got guys cutting your meat right there for you? It seemed crazy. 
and I would eat, and I would eat, and I would eat, and when it was all over, there was still soft-serve ice cream. Any restaurant with a soft-serve machine was cool with me. Now, obviously, there's nothing healthy about the concept of all-you-can-eat, but we love a deal, so it's become a big part of our American dining experience. The idea that you can go spend seven or eight or nine or ten bucks and eat until you're full and then some. But I'm telling you, Jesus started it. In Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Now, now this is a, a fairly common scene in the life of Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, if you read about the life of Jesus, you find these moments where it seems like maybe or definitely Jesus is trying to get away for a little bit. He's trying to have some, either some alone time or some time with just him and God, or even just some time with just him and his disciples. And so often what happened is that the people that had been with Jesus, the crowds that seemed to follow him everywhere, would continue to follow him. They'd find him. They'd search for him. I can't say that I blame them because it seemed like everywhere Jesus went, there was healing and there was teaching and there was love and there was hope that they weren't finding other places. And so so if Jesus brings that, uh, the people are going to follow. I, I get it. But he couldn't seem to get a minute alone. But what I love about this is even in this moment, when Jesus seems to be trying to get away, even in this moment, what we see is that he welcomed them. And he taught them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who were sick. And I have to be honest with you, I, I'd probably fall way short of Jesus in a situation like this. Because I'd probably say, can I not just get five minutes of peace without all you people needing things? And trust me, these people, if you hear somebody's healing things, you start to say, hmm, is there anything wrong with me? Is there anything that I could get healed? Everybody else is getting healed, and I don't have a major thing, but I've got to believe that there were people coming in going, Jesus, you know, I, I saw you healed that blind man. I've, I've got this hangnail that's really been giving me trouble. Or Jesus, I know you raised Lazarus from the dead, but, but I've had this headache for about an hour and it just, I can't seem to get any relief. Could you take care of that for me? And I have to believe people were looking for ways to get closer to Jesus. And yet in the face of what I'm sure at times was the annoying crowd, Jesus wasn't annoyed. He welcomes them, he teaches, and he heals anyway. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to him and said, send the crowds away to nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this remote place. And it's at this point we realize that Jesus really did try to go somewhere towards the middle of nowhere to get a few minutes of peace. And they followed him anyway. And there's no place to sleep and there's no food, but these people, uh, I think the disciples kind of are feeling like we're kind of responsible for these folks. Let's send them to find a place to, to get some food and to get some shelter before it's too late, before it's dark. I also think we can assume that, that the disciples are ready for a break as well. You see, I'm not sure that we always grasp the all-day nature of these gatherings with Jesus. These people, the crowds, they'd follow Jesus for days and listen to him teach for hours all day if he was willing to do so. If he was still there and still teaching, they would stay. And what I've always found interesting here is that you don't see anyone in the crowd saying, I'm hungry. 
They probably were, but it's the disciples, maybe a little hungry themselves, maybe a little tired themselves, that suggest everyone go and and fend for themselves before it's too late. And that doesn't really sound like something Jesus is going to go for here, and he doesn't. He says this in verse 13, but Jesus said, you feed them. You feed them. Now, I would love to see the look on the disciples' face when that was what Jesus said. You feed them. Uh, 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 there are a, a significant number of websites out there, I don't know if you've ever used these, that give you this opportunity. And if you haven't done this, try it. You'll probably run into the same problem I have. But what you can do is you can enter a list of things that you know you have in your pantry or fridge. And it can be really random stuff. You're like, well, I've got leftover, you know, a can of cranberry sauce. I didn't use it at Thanksgiving. I've got some already cooked chicken, and I've got, you know, apples. And you enter it in, and and what happens on these websites is it tries to spit out a recipe that you should be able to make without going to the store. You know, these are the things that you have. This is what you can make. And, And so I've done this before. What usually happens is that whatever recipe it finds, I'm still missing one or two things. I still end up going to the store, which negates the benefit of the tool. But the disciples here, they're not at home. They don't have a home anymore since they started following Jesus. They don't have a pantry and a fridge to check. I can only imagine that a quick check of whatever kind of pockets they may have or bags they may be carrying proves unhelpful. But they do find a little bit of food. They go on and say, but we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. If you've heard other versions of this story, there's actually a kid in the crowd that has this stuff, five loaves of bread and two fish. The disciples say this, they say, or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for the whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. And so they're doing the math. These guys are not highly scholarly necessarily, but they're also not dumb. Five loaves of bread and two fish is not going to feed 5,000 people. And so if you entered this into one of those little tools, one of those websites, it would come up with fish sandwiches. That's it. Fish sandwiches. Unless the bread is stale or can be toasted because then we could actually use the bread to bread the fish and you could have some, something like that. But, but bread and fish, there's a limit here. And then we could have tartar sauce or cocktail sauce, depending on how you roll with that. And I've helped prepare food for large groups of people before. It's a complicated process, but if you're organized and you utilize common sense, it can be done. And I always, always would rather have more food than I need than to run out. But I've never helped plan food for 5,000 people, and I never want to. And if I was gonna, going to, I would need about a month to prepare. But Jesus said, make it happen. Jesus said, you feed them. And we assume based on the text here that the 5,000 number here is just the men, that there are women and children present as well. Most people assume that we're probably talking about more than 10,000 people. 5,000 is a lot anyway. Double it. So the disciples, I don't know what they're thinking at this point. I'd like to know. But Jesus goes on. It says, Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. And remember, at this point, the disciples were thinking they were going to have to go find enough food for 5,000 people plus the women and children. And if that was the case, it was absolutely not time for anybody to sit down at the dinner table yet not time yet. 
They didn't have appetizers. They didn't have chips and salsa like most Mexican restaurants today. By the way, I wish more restaurants would adopt that give me something to munch on thing. I, it just makes sense. Like, I'd be cool with that. And different kinds of restaurants could really come up with some good ideas or some different things, you know, automatically bringing you something to eat. But the disciples are going, wait a second, it's not time to sit down. We don't even have the food, let alone have cooked the food. I don't understand what's going on. This doesn't make sense. Why does Jesus seem so calm? I wonder how many times in the multiple years that they followed Jesus, the disciples simply had to look at Jesus and say, how are you just so calm in the midst of this? So the disciples had to be reaching a high level of confusion mixed with doubt based on the situation. And it says in verse 16, this amazing thing, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. And what I've always wanted to know here is at what point the doubt that was remaining in the disciples disappeared. Because every time the disciples came back to Jesus where the food was, every time the disciples came back to Jesus where the food was, there was more food. And that didn't make sense. Because one tray should have been enough to go and not be able to get any when you come back. And I just want to know how quickly that doubt dissipated. There was more and more and more, even, even once there shouldn't have been any left. And beyond that and beyond that, there was more. Verse 17, in fact, says, they all ate as much as they wanted. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. See, I told you, all you can eat. All you can eat. More food left over than they started with. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Now, that's a sustainable business model or a miracle, one or the other. But either way, it's pretty cool. Now, in this series, we're talking about multiplication. We're talking about God taking us, taking our skills, taking our resources, taking our time, taking our money, even taking our willingness and multiplying it and using it to make multiplication happen in the kingdom of God, using us to affect change in the world, using us to reach people who need to know Jesus. That's why we were created in the first place. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. We were not only created by God, but we were created by God for God's purposes. But the truth is this. We are an awful lot like the loaves and the fish in this story. We are limited on our own. I'm not trying to break down your self-esteem or anything today, but on your own, on my own, there is a limit to what we can do. Let me give you an example. I love that we have chairs in this room um, instead of pews. No offense to people who like pews, but I like the chairs because it makes it possible for us to utilize this room in a variety of ways. We do blood drives in here. We play games in here. Um, we do all sorts of stuff in here where we, we take the chairs out. We have meals in here. We've had wedding receptions in here. And that's all possible because we can move the chairs. We can get them out of the way. And so that works really well. And some of you have been a part of this, but if on a Sunday we know that we're going to need chairs to be taken down during the week, I ask second service, and then I ask you guys to help me get the chairs out of here. And, and here's the truth of it. I'll just be completely honest with you. 
when the chairs in this room go down quickly after second service and then after late church, when it happens right in front of me all that fast, it's one of my favorite feelings in the world. And the reason that is, is because I have taken them all down by myself. And I have put them all back up by myself. And it's not something I really want to do because it takes a long time and it's tiring. There is absolutely a limit to what I can do by myself. But with help, the ability to accomplish the task is multiplied. And in our lives, God can be and is the ultimate multiplier of all things. In every way, we are limited, but with God's help, I believe we can do whatever He asks of us. When we seek God's guidance and His help, when we're willing to accept His guidance and His help, when we actually rely on that guidance and that help, instead of just saying, oh yeah, I rely on God. The limits are lifted, and God can do amazing things in and through us. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, what he's doing in this letter, he's, he's encouraging the people of the Philippian church to shine brightly for Christ. He, he's, in every one of Paul's letters, there's almost always a section that is strictly about encouragement. And here's what he says to the Philippian church in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. God gives the desire and the power. We are simply His instruments. And this can be tough for us to grasp because a lot of us were raised to be independent and strong and to do things on our own and to earn everything through our own efforts and hard work and to say, nobody's ever going give to you, give you a hand up. You have to pull yourself up. And, and, and that's fine. I was raised that way. That's not a bad way to be raised but it shouldn't be at the expense of remembering and acknowledging God's power in our lives and embracing that power by stepping out of our comfort zone into the things that God would have us to do. God's called us to reach out and share His love with the people around us. He's called us to meet needs and take care of the poor and the orphan and the widow and really anyone who finds themselves in need. He's called us to do all those things and more. And on our own, the truth is we can do some of that, but with God there's no limit to what we can do. And so if we're willing to do what God has called us to do, that's a, that is a big step. A willing, the willingness to do that is a big step. And if we're willing to rely on God's power in doing those things, that's another huge step. And that sounds simple. It sounds simple to say, well, we just need to rely on God's power. But we struggle with that. And I think part of the reason is that we don't understand or acknowledge just how powerful God really is. Because we'll say God is all-powerful. But then we kind of keep God in a box. We say God is with me, but then we try to do things on our own. There is literally no limit to God's power, but we seem to, to infer limits. We seem to put limits on it. There's this really cool moment in Exodus. It's actually in the middle of a fairly well-known story. Um, the Egyptian people, the Egyptian king Pharaoh, uh, enslaved the Israelite people. And God calls Moses to, to bring the Israelite people, God's people, out of slavery. And there, there's a whole story behind that and plagues, and it's a great story. You should go read it. But, but after the Israelite people leave Egypt, there's this really cool story. They're in the wilderness. They're They're, they're leaving. Moses has gone toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. He's told Pharaoh, let my people go. 
God has made it possible for that to really happen. And Pharaoh, in fact, said, just go. Get your people out of Egypt. Unfortunately, shortly after Pharaoh released the Israelites and they left Egypt, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. It's like they all realized that they had all this free labor because it was slave labor. And they did the math and realized how much more work they would have to do, how much more their people would have to do because all their slaves were gone. And they realized that the people might not be very happy with who said, let him go. And so I think Pharaoh probably realizes, I'm about to be a very disliked person. And so he and his officials decide that they would come after the Israelites, recapture them, bring them back, put them back into slavery. And I want to share a chunk of this story with you because this is, this is really good. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. I don't know if it's really that bad in the wilderness for them or if they just overreact, but I cannot imagine being in a situation where I say, being a slave would be better than being free, which is what they're saying. They're saying, this is so bad, I'd rather still be a slave. Now, now they're assuming they're going to die. And so that would be the one situation where maybe I understand saying, I'd rather be a slave than be here and be killed. But basically, Moses looks at them and he says, God's, God's got this. And he literally says, just stay calm. It's under control. Which is comforting, except they're losing their trust in Moses and they can see Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army is moving quickly. Pharaoh's army is coming fast. Pharaoh's army has weapons. It's only a matter of time before they catch him. And they'll either be taken back into slavery or killed, and they're not even sure which of those is better. And so we can't be surprised that the Israelites are freaking out, but Moses remains calm. But then God speaks to Moses, and this is really, I had never noticed this before. God says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. That's the verse I don't want us to miss in all of this. Because I honestly believe a lot of us know God is powerful. We know He's powerful. We acknowledge that power. We know that it's there for us in our lives. We say, I serve an all-powerful God. But then we sit and we wait for God to act on our behalf. We wait for God to move us. And God very clearly here says, tell the people to get moving. Tell the people to get moving. If we want God to work through us, if we want our power and our talents and our abilities and our gifts to be multiplied by the power of God, to impact the kingdom, I think we have to also move. I think we have to take some steps ourselves. 
God absolutely can move us, but I think His power is even more multiplied in us when we're willing to already be in motion for Him. You know, I've so often said things like, you know, God, show me ways I can better serve you. And then I sit and I wait for God to show me ways that I can better serve him. I bet if I start looking for ways to better serve him, he'll show me even faster. (coughs) See, we're limited without God, but we're not helpless. I bet, you know, you've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, and I actually hate that phrase. Um, I've heard it misused a lot of times, kind of in a hurtful way. Um, actually, it's, it's often misused as, a, as an excuse to ignore those in need. I have to admit, I, I've misused it that way, but, but the phrase in itself is true. God does help those who help themselves. God doesn't tell us to wait for Him. He says He'll go with us. His power will go with us, will be in us. He will guide us. That infers motion. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If we go through any given day and say, well, I just didn't see any situations where I could be Jesus in someone's life. If we say that, we must not have gotten out of bed or we just weren't looking. We can look for ways to serve. We can look for needs to meet. We can move and God's power will move in and through us. If we just sit still, we can't be surprised that we don't see God's power. We wait, and what we do is we we spiritualize our unwillingness to move by saying, well, I'm waiting for God. (laughs) I'm waiting for God to do something here. But in our story here, God tells Moses what to do. He says, tell the people to get moving. He goes on in verse 16. This is still God speaking to Moses. He says, pick up your staff and raise your hands over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelites' camps. And as darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and the Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. And the wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. And can you imagine a more terrifying place to walk. This is not supposed to happen. But here's what it came down to for the Israelites. Their movement, their willingness to keep their feet moving, plus God's power, resulted in their victory. They were safe. They were free. They were following God's plan for them. And once they were through on dry ground and and the Egyptians were in in the midst of the water, that terrifying place to walk became their grave because God closed the water. The truth is, it's the same for us as it was for the Israelites. Our movement, 
Not just our willingness to move. Not just our intent to move. Because we say, I want to do great things for God, but then we don't actually take any steps to do it. Our movement plus God's power will result in victory. It will result in us truly doing what God has called us to do. And ultimately will result in multiplication in the kingdom of God as people come to know Him. I can't tell you how many people I've known and how many times I myself have said, man, I wish God would just present somebody in my life that needs to know Him so that I can make the introduction. And I wait and I wait and I've seen people wait and wait and they say, I just, I just don't know anybody that doesn't know Jesus. That's, that's not true at all. But we wait for God to show us the perfect person that, that won't have any questions about God that we can't answer, that won't, won't have any doubts that we can't speak to. We want God to give us somebody who will be easy to bring to Christ. The truth is, we need God to bring us the tough cases. Because with His power, we can reach those people for Him. God has blessed us with so much. With, with time, with money, with talents, with skills, with passions, with energy, with resources, and so much more. And those things by themselves are fine. There, there's a lot that we can do with those things on our own. But when we put those things into play for God, with His power, all of those things, time, money, talents, skills, passions, energy, resources, and so much more, those things are multiplied, and, and in that, lives can be changed by God. And that's the goal. That's the victory. God wants to work in and through us. Sometimes the problem is we don't invite him into that. We need to take a step forward and invite God to come along with us. Because everything good that we can do is only through his power. Again, that's the goal. That's the victory. That more people know him. Let's pray. God, you really have given us so much. And, and the, the thing that you've offered us that we so often don't use it, it is your power. We convince ourselves that there are only certain things we can do. There, that there's a limit to the impact that we can have in, in our family or in our community or beyond. We convince ourselves that there's a limit to the impact that we can have as a church. We convince ourselves that some people are simply going to perish without knowing you. And, and, and when we end up, as awful as it sounds, being okay with that. Being okay with the fact that there's a limit to our impact as individuals and as a church. And, 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 and almost become okay with the fact that there's just no way to reach everybody. God, some of the reason we become so okay with that is because we ignore we refuse to embrace that your power is there for us. You want us to strive for things that seem impossible, that become possible with you. You want us to not settle for our best, but strive for our best with your power in us. There's a world that needs to know you. There are people that, that have needs we can't even imagine. Help us to take steps 
in your power to meet those needs and to reach those people. And we want to spend eternity with you in heaven, and we want as many people to be there as possible. We want everybody to be there. Help us to do our part. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.